Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive over the last year. We're taking a break for the holidays, and we'll be back next week with an exciting conversation about the year ahead, from the 2024 election to the Trump trials and much more. In the meantime, we wanted to share a great conversation from our friends over at The New Yorker. Henry Kissinger died last month at the age of 100. On this episode of the Political Scene podcast, hosts Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos, three of The New Yorker's top political writers, look at Kissinger's legacy, and they explore how he maintained his grip on power and relevance in Washington for decades after he left office. Make sure to listen and follow the political scene from The New Yorker wherever you get your podcasts. And Happy New Year. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues Susan Glasser and Evan Osnos. Hey, Susan. Hi, Evan. Hey there. Great to be with you. Hey, Jane. Nice to see you guys. Are you asking me whether I would change anything that I had done? That, of course, is Henry Kissinger. This clip is from a 60-minute segment in 1999. Kissinger is speaking with high schoolers in the South Bronx. You're asking the wrong person. (laughs) Now, let me tell you, I get asked that question often, and I would love to have an answer where I could say, if I only had done this one thing differently, then everyone would think I'm very open-minded. But the fact is, on the main lines of our policy, I wouldn't change anything. I tried to do the best we could, and looking back on it, I have no second thoughts. Henry Kissinger died at the age of 100 this week. He served as Secretary of State and National Security Advisor under President Nixon, as Secretary of State under President Ford, and as an advisor to at least 10 other U.S. presidents. For better or for worse, we're living in a world that Henry Kissinger played no small role in building. So we wanted to take a look at some of the ways he shaped U.S. foreign policy. But this is the political scene. And we also wanted to take a look at Kissinger's influence in Washington. What made him so effective for so long, despite the incredible controversy that surrounded his career? And what can this teach us about how power works in Washington? But I was thinking we could start with one of Kissinger's more recent high-profile trips to China this past summer. Evan, what do you think the substance of this trip was, and what does it tell you about Kissinger's outlook, ambitions, or even his last few months? Well, for one thing, it tells you that the man was truly um, reluctant to retire. Uh, Here he was 100 years old and and goes off to China. This was not sightseeing. Here he was sitting with Xi Jinping and the Chinese minister of defense talking about the gravest issues you can imagine, the question of can these two 
powers coexist? Can they figure out a way to avoid war? And in some ways, it's the extension of the project that's been his life's work, uh, particularly on China. We're going to talk a lot about it. Uh, Just a couple of little atmospherics that I found interesting. Sure. I mean, one thing is the Chinese were very aware and frankly kind of transparent in how much they wanted to go back to the past, to Hmm. go back to the era when Henry Kissinger was opening up relations between these two. You know, they held the meetings in the same guest house where they did it in the 1970s. And, you know, just one thing that didn't really make much of news but I thought was fascinating is before he went, they had actually tried to get another uh, what they call old friend of China, Hank Greenberg, 98-year-old insurance magnate. People will remember him from the AIG mess. Um, but he's also been involved in China for years. And he was going to come. They had nurses lined up, ambulances ready in case because, you know, when you bring somebody that age, you have to think about it. He couldn't come in the end. Kissinger came. But it is a sign of how, in a way, uh, this relationship has almost outlived the apparatus that created it. That is the puzzle that the U.S.-China relationship is facing, and Kissinger was uh, the symbol of that. That's so interesting. I mean, Hank Greenberg and and his huge company have long been clients of Kissinger Associates as Mm, well. So it shows you the business relationship being intertwined. Susan, what, what stood out to you about that trip? Well, you know, it's very interesting, Jane. I actually saw Kissinger uh, and uh, uh, listened to him expound about it uh, over a dinner after he came back from it. And, you know, it's it's so telling, as Evan said, both about the kind of unraveling of this relationship that Kissinger took so much credit for. But I also think it's just it's it's the fitting bow to the end of Kissinger himself and and his career. It tells us so much. Uh, There are not that many hundred-year-olds who uh, insist upon their own relevance and actually are relevant, right? Uh, And, you know, generally, if you've made it that long, you've outlived your contemporaries, you've outlived your moment. Uh, Henry Kissinger refused to outlive his moment, and he was always going to stay in the moment, and for good and for ill, right? Mm. He, He was his desperate need to remain in the centers of power. If power was his religion, then (laughs) you have to have access to power in order to wield power, which, of course, is why he is the the paradigmatic Washington figure. It's why we're having this conversation today. And, of course, people were well aware of that, and they cultivated that. The Chinese, so artfully, as Evan said, they held it in the same guest house where he'd been 50 years ago. They even, I was told, they even had the same menu at lunch uh, (laughs) that they served him. And, you know, they gave him access to senior Chinese officials that present-day American officials were having a hard time getting access to. And you have to have access to power in order to wield it. Even this new generation, when he had his 100th birthday party, which he had a little while before this trip to China, uh, you had many Democrats as well as Republicans attending this event, including the current Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. And I think there was a a sort of collective uh, addiction in a way of the, the Washington national security set to Kissinger's 
big brain uh, with all the liabilities, political and otherwise, that came attached with it. I love that. A collective addiction Mm -hmm. to Kissinger's big brain. Um, (laughs) As far as his access to power and not giving it up even to the very end, I have to say that you, you guys have probably also heard this great anecdote, which is that he worked hard with the New York Times on his own obituary. Mm. So, um, you know, he had access to the final view of what would be said about him. And there's apparently David Sanger, who wrote the obituary, um, called up Kissinger in and, advance, in advance, and <laughs> and interviewed him about some things. And Kissinger said, "Is this for a story for which I will not be able to demand a correction?" <laughs> but um, but if anyone could demand a correction and shape his image after the grave, it it, it might have been Kissinger. Well, to, to be fair, like... <laughs> to be fair, that that when they do these big obituaries, they sure. often have interviews in advance. So it but, wasn't just but a it was his wit, for Kissinger. his wit at you know describing but you know, also, how he dealt with this very delicate process. And he was obviously very involved in shaping his image, which required a lot of airbrushing because he was a, one of the most controversial figures and 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 reviled by by many people. So and he had a lot of had a lot of image issues to deal with during his lifetime. I, and we're going to talk about a number of those. And I think but that point that that's a I think people didn't know this from afar, but he was a pretty thin-skinned guy. Ford, uh, former president Ford called him uh the most thin-skinned person he ever knew. And I think Interestingly, I talked to uh, Gideon Rose, who was editor of Foreign Affairs, who said to me, every editor of Foreign Affairs has had a fight with Kissinger. And he, he said the thing about Kissinger, and he said it, and, and he was putting this in the context of actually being quite complimentary of Kissinger's record. I want to sort of be clear about that. But he said, and when it came to being an author, what was interesting about him was he said that, you know, here he is, he's written 21 books, you know, he's a winner of the National Book Award, but he would bridle at these little slights, any mention in a review that he didn't like, because he said, oh, he said, even Kissinger's mother couldn't have written a review that would have been satisfactory <laughs> to him. Well, line. and by the way, I have firsthand experience of this extraordinary thin skinnedness, right? Like, here's one of the most famous people in the world, even, you know, at his advanced age, well into his 90s, is essentially as close to a household name as any foreign policy figure can get in this country. And so I was um, going to moderate a book event for uh, a very uh, interesting book that I highly recommend called The Master of the Game by Martin Indyk, who was a longtime American Middle East peace negotiator. And he actually is a Democrat, but he was fascinated by Kissinger's invention in effect of shuttle diplomacy and wanted to do this project to kind of look at how did we get it so wrong ultimately? How did we fail uh, on Middle East peace? But Kissinger cooperated with the book. They were going to do a joint appearance for this book, and uh, they asked me to interview them. And then there starts to be the problems. First, (laughs) Kissinger says, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want someone from The New Yorker. They're, they're very nasty to me. And <laughs> Martin says, are you kidding? Like, Susan wasn't even born when, you know, that the Vietnam War was happening. Like, you can't hold it. So then he says, well, OK. OK. But uh, I, I, I need to talk to her about what questions she's going to have. And he, he emails me and I said, no, absolutely not. I am not going to be in a position of negotiating with Henry Kissinger because <laughs> that's not going to come out well for me. I, I won't negotiate over the questions. Uh, you know, either you... Trust me to do this or not. So then I send this email. I don't hear back for a while. Then he comes back and he says, okay, we'll just do it. And I asked him later, what happened? What? Why did Kissinger just abandon this? And he said, well, he's very calculating about his image. And he decided that if he got on the phone 
with you. And he said, here's the questions I won't answer, that that would become That would be the story. That would be the story. And he said he did, he was just, he was going to risk it with you. <laughs> Anyways, and I just thought, my God, this man is, at the time, I think he was 96, 97 Well, that was his impetuous years. Old. I mean, later, he wouldn't have done <laughs> such a thing. <laughs> I'm just going to say, if if it comes down to a contest between Susan Glasser and and Henry Kissinger on negotiations. No way. I know my, where my money's, money's on going. Susan. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm just gonna just put it out I'm there. With you. Okay. you can right. you can tease me all you want, but <laughs> uh, anyway, you know. So I think, as you say, he is the most well known of anybody from the foreign policy establishment. Even so, for listeners who do, who may not know too much about Kissinger, maybe it's just worth quickly reprising um, his background. Um, he was born in Germany and. 1923, and famously, his family fled Nazi Germany. He was a, a Jewish, and um, he arrived in New York City as a teenager. And um, did that experience impinge in some way on his worldview that shaped the world we're living in? Uh, it totally did, and I think that's a great way to frame the question. I mean, in some ways, you know, he's a completely American story. I mean, here he is, this family of immigrants, Jews who were uh, driven out of Germany. Uh, they left just before Kristallnacht. They came to the United States. He was uh, a kid growing up in the city. He worked uh, at night in a shaving brush factory, and then he was going to be an accountant. That was his big ambition. He, and then he goes into the military, goes into the army, goes off to World War II in Germany, uh, one of the things that happened was that he was in a unit that ended up discovering a concentration camp at the end, and he described it as the most shocking experience of his life. I think for a lot of people, just an aside, critics would really gnash their teeth and say, how could somebody who saw the abuse of power then become somebody who would abuse power? Um, but he comes back from World War II, goes to Harvard, ends up writing this thesis, which is sort of ludicrously expansive. It ended up creating a rule in the Harvard government department called the Kissinger Rule, which is that no undergraduate thesis could be more than 150 pages because his was 300. He goes, he becomes this, you know, superstar in the faculty. His doctoral dissertation makes him a star and off he goes. And pretty quickly, he rises up through the ranks and he's advising presidents or future presidents. And that brings him to the doorstep of history. Of Nixon and of China. Susan, well, I mean, everybody thinks of, I mean, when Nixon goes to China has become a phrase in that means something to everybody now, which is basically the most improbable um, deal is struck by the person you least expected. But what actually happened in China? What was this about? Well, I mean, Jane, you asked about his background, and I think there's, you know, it's the subject of that thesis that in, in many ways interests me because Kissinger started studying back at Harvard the 19th century power politics and this world mm -hmm. of the competing great powers and, you know, this idea that you needed to have peace between warring great powers that shared the same Eurasian landmass. And that was one that I think really shaped Henry Kissinger throughout his entire subsequent career in uh, foreign policy and uh, national security. And so when you look at the opening to China, it's in the context of a fundamental worldview that uh, essentially long-term strategic interests of great powers he sees it as the role of the diplomat to balance and manage those, uh, and he prioritizes stability and arrangements between those powers at the expense of, of almost all else. Also, he was a very, very 
manipulative and, you know, sort of clever man, he saw a great opportunity in the Cold War to split the Soviet Union and China. They were already had a rupture. And he thought, well, this is our opening. And Nixon, by the way, had long had this idea too. So that's the thing. I think they were really, you know, kind of linked together by history in this, mm. but forever each wanting to take credit for it. But remember that this was the opportunity, the split between the two great communist powers. And this offered the United States the, the opening to kind of defang the global Cold War. And Kissinger at the same time was also pursuing with Nixon a strategy of detente with the Soviet Union. And so I, I see those two things as together. We tend to talk about China more because it was more positive to the shaper of the legacy, Kissinger. But this wasn't just China in isolation. It was China and the Soviet Union. Tying two points together, Jane, you mentioned uh, what impact did his upbringing have on his worldview ultimately. And I think something that was in the great book that Susan mentioned by Martin Endick about Kissinger's role in the Middle East, that in some ways, the, Kissinger's own life experience made him believe that the Wilsonian ideal of uh, the United States going out into the world and making it safe for democracy was, in Kissinger's mind, uh, unrealistic. He believed, this is as Martin put it, he, he didn't believe in achieving peace per se because he thought that was fragile and ultimately unattainable. He believed in seeking order. And order and hierarchy and power, you know, that is Echt Kissinger, right? That's the, that's the heart of the matter. It's in some ways the thing that is most enraging to his critics, and it is also the reason that made him so durable. And when you get to the question of China, here it is. It's 1969 when he embarks on this process. The, he and Nixon, frankly, were an odd couple. It, it, Kissinger had said about Nixon during the primary, he was, you know, Kissinger was working for his opponent at that point. And he said, if Nixon gets into the White House, he's the most dangerous man we could have running our foreign policy. And yet when Nixon secures the nomination, Kissinger makes, and this is the key word, a compromise. And compromise was sort of the defining fact about his playbook. And he decided my ambition and my talents require me to work for this man. And off they went and made history. I mean, and the, the flip side of that hyper-realistic power is what matters, um, order is what matters, not peace, is it seems a, a legacy that, to his critics, um, was pretty impervious to moral issues yeah. having to do with sort of— um, the, <laughs> That's a charitable <laughs> way of putting it, Jane. Yeah, I'm, tra- I'm struggling to say they're, they're, they've lost tens, who knows, hundreds of thousands, millions of lives probably for some of the decisions yes. that he made during the course yeah. of his lifetime and sent waves of millions and millions of refugees fleeing. Um, and that while he was playing the great power game, there were lesser powers that were completely pummeled and, and, and thrown to the winds, um, and that this, there was a dark side of this. So, I Very mean, if you so. wanted, even if you just take his great achievement with China, there was an underside, wasn't there? You want to explain what that was in terms of that particular negotiation? Well, that's right. The, the convergence uh, in time of two events really ended up being a sort of lesser known and understood tragedy. Uh, but basically, there were different ways that Nixon and Kissinger were looking to get a message through to China. And ultimately, one of the channels they ended up using was the military dictator of Pakistan at the time. And Yahya this was, Khan, I think, was who it exactly, was, his general. Exactly. And this was a story 
powerfully recounted by our mutual friend Gary Bass, Princeton professor, in his book, The Blood Telegram. Back in 1971, you had this... uh, not only secret opening to China that Kissinger was working through the Pakistan channel, but Pakistan at the very same moment is undertaking what amounts to a brutal campaign of ethnic cleansing and ultimately even genocide was the term used uh, to put down an uprising and an independence movement by largely Hindu Bengalis. And this led to mayhem in the streets. It was all observed there by U.S. diplomats on the ground in the U.S. consulate in Dhaka. They tried to raise the alarm. They went directly uh, to Washington, to Henry Kissinger, who not only would not listen, but, but put down their internal internal efforts uh, to raise the alarm. And that's the term, the blood telegram, because the ranking American official on the ground there was an American diplomat called Arthur Blood. And Evan, yeah, to me, this is like the entire dissent channel, actually, in the modern day U.S. State Department comes out of this experience where these American diplomats they couldn't reach their higher-ups because their higher-up was Henry Kissinger, who didn't want to listen. Yeah, that, I mean, that's yeah. the thing. You can They sent the telegram. It's just it was, you know, as, as they would say, not received. Did Kissinger ever really reckon, do you think, both of you, with the, the death, the destruction surrounding and flowing from some of his decisions? No, I think, I, you know, we started this episode with that extraordinary piece of tape in which you heard him asked, um, you know, did you ever revise your view? Do you think you did things wrong? And and in some ways, you know, the, the fact that he was soldiering on at 100 is the eloquent testimony that no, frankly, he did not have regrets. He never apologized. And I think it drove people ultimately to a rage. And we were just talking a moment ago about this Blood Telegram book. And I, I think all of us remember... I mean, amazingly, we were talking about it before we started the show today. Susan, there was a moment at your house (laughs) involving Archer Blood and his – Archer Blood's descendants. And it does capture on some level the way in which Kissinger's legacy is not just felt on this grandest of scales but also in individual lives. Well, that's right. Uh, because, you know, we, we do tend to talk about, you know, the victims of the secret bombing, for example, of uh, Laos and Cambodia, or we talk about, uh, you know, the, the military coup that uh, Kissinger authorized uh, in Chile of the Allende government, uh, or Bangladesh. We talk about it in the broad sweep, but Kissinger was also a, a brutal revenge taker in person, too. And so our friend Gary Bass does this remarkable book. And actually, amazingly, all three of us were, were at this, this book party in our house. And the descendants of the writer of the Blood Telegram are there, and they are weeping in our living room. And it was, it was an incredibly powerful moment because they said, Henry Kissinger ruined our father's career. He actually determined to hound him out of the U.S. Foreign Service because of that act of speaking truth to power. I remember that moment, and I have to say the thing is most of the victims of of 
Henry Kissinger's policy decisions didn't live to tell that story. Yeah. They weren't in any of our living rooms, but um, there there were millions. I mean, and I'm old enough to remember the secret bombing of Cambodia and, and Laos. And um, as President Obama said later, you know, we, the U.S., dropped more bombs on those two countries um, in that, that illegal and secret b- bombing episode than the United States dropped on Europe in World War II. This was, of course, during the course of the Vietnam War when the United States felt that the Viet Cong was escaping into Laos and Cambodia. Um, You know, I mean, his legacy obviously has been contested. It's fraught. He won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1973, and many critics and observers at the time called him a war criminal. Do you see, either of you, his effect as destructive or constructive? You know, how do, you, how do we evaluate this legacy? There was a, a thoughtful piece by um, Ben Rhodes, who had been um, one of Obama's national security uh, aides in the White House. And he made the point that I think does capture the dynamic we're getting to, which is that in some ways, Henry Kissinger represented the gap between the myth that America tells ourselves and the actual impact that we have in the world, which is to say that we are on the one hand, uh, the essential indispensable power. We are at the heart of the questions of global peace and security. And at the same time, we cause a tremendous amount of wreckage and damage along the way. And and it is you have to kind of reckon with both of those facts and grieve both of those facts if you're going to have an honest accounting of our passage in the world. Let's take a break. When we're back, we'll talk about what made Kissinger so effective for so long and what it can teach us about power and influence in our town, Washington. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And Lord was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f- themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. I want us to take a look at Kissinger the man. Those of us in Washington know that he was incredibly social um, and kind of a potentate in the upper echelon foreign policy circles here. So how do you think he was viewed and received inside the Beltway in Washington? Was he feared, admired, sought after? What would you guys say? All of the above, Jane. Henry Kissinger... uh 
loved the Washington game. He uh, saw himself uh, not just as a master of shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East, but primarily as the master of how to get close to power, how to seek it out, how to manipulate it, and in turn, how to benefit from it. And in that sense, he's this sort of archetypal figure. If you want to sort of unpack the Washington rules, which is something we've done in Mm. the course of this podcast, uh, Henry Kissinger uh, sort of was (laughs) the gold standard in in many of these. uh, Sort of like the Old Testament God of the Washington (laughs) rule book. You know, there's the the art of managing up. Well, listen to those Nixon Kissinger tapes if you want to hear about uh, managing up. Uh, Information control freak. We talked a little bit about his thin skin, but it was more than that. He was also completely amoral and yet so insecure. He needed desperately. He was sucking up to presidents long after someone else would have just been playing golf and, you know, giving it up. He even sucked up to Donald Trump. People forget this mm-hmm. uh, uh, because he he wanted to be in the game. And he very purposefully, calculatedly uh, uh, cultivated a relationship with Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, who was sort of the designated uh, outreach of the family to the kind of foreign policy crowd. And here is one story that we got for for the divider that I think just tells you so much about Henry Kissinger. And again, remember, this is a man in his 90s when he's doing this for no particular reason, except this is how he plays the Washington game. So Jared Kushner knows nothing uh, you know, about the world and is thrust into all these powerful people wanting access. Well, Kissinger's still playing both sides. The Germans come to Henry Kissinger. They're freaking out about Donald Trump. What does it mean that he has won this upset election in 2016? What does it mean for NATO? What does it mean for Germany? And Kissinger tells them, well, don't worry, you know, talk to uh, my friend Jared Kushner. And he says, you know, he's the, he's going to be your guy. He's going to help you understand that world. At the same time, he goes to Kushner and he says, listen, the Europeans and, and other world leaders, they're all going to be coming to you now. Uh, they're seeking reassurance. And he tells Jared Kushner, don't give it to them. Keep them <laughs> off balance. That's your leverage. I love, I love that story because it's it it shows mm-hmm. the essence of the guy, right? He's he's a manipulator, he's playing both sides, he's he's desperate to get access to power, even when to what end? What, yeah. what does Henry Kissinger need access uh, it was, to the White it House? It was the sa- same in the early days when, I mean, even in the, in the you know, when the Pentagon um, papers leaked, Kissinger was just his, in hysterical outrage over the thing yeah. and f- demanded that there would be an investigation into leakers, um, which many people think was really kind of the the, the prelude to mm. the Watergate bugging. But at any rate, at the same time, during while this was happening, I I know because my husband was working for Scotty Reston, the New mm. York Times columnist. That um, according to my husband, every other day Reston would say, "Get Kissinger," and they'd get him <laughs> on the phone. Um, and minutes later, he was there shaping what Scotty Reston put in his column, which shaped what. All the New York Times readers thought about the world. And I want to say what I think some listeners are thinking right now, which they're (laughs) screaming at their whatever it is that they're listening on. They're thinking, this is what I hate about Washington. That is the swamp, right? They're thinking that you've got Henry Kissinger chattering to Scotty Reston and shaping the narrative. And it's all, frankly, 
true. On some level, Henry Kissinger was the ultimate operator. He had all of the levers at his disposal. You know, Susan talked about his capacity to suck up. You know, the, the White House tapes are amazing as a document of how to suck up effectively in Suck Up City because you heard him pandering to Nixon. Uh, you know, he would kind of go along with Nixon's bigotry, Nixon's uh, view of things. And then privately, of course, he'd turn around and tell people that Nixon was a madman and, a, and he called he, him our drunken friend. He had to like have that. been a huge source to Woodward Bernstein for that. There are Absolutely, amazing sure. book, The Final Days, where you have, you know, Nixon on his knees praying. Um, and who else was in the room? Only Henry Kissinger. <laughs> well, and, dr- and drunk. I mean, this is yeah. a, a meaningful fact. Not Speaking a, to the know, portraits. Talking, yeah, yeah, talking to the part, talking to the art, and then also uh, this is the man with his finger on the nuclear button. And the and the subtext, as in all Kissinger stories, was, but for me, Henry Kissinger. Uh, Armageddon would have come. And that was the sort of the takeaway. Can take I just away. add one? I, I, I okay, what were you going to say, Susan? Well, I, I, Evan, you're exactly right. There's the famous story of uh, uh, someone saying to him, well, should we call you Dr. Kissinger, Secretary Kissinger? And he, he says, well, excellency, we'll be fine. <laughs> um, but he also was famous. The other thing, right, about why he was the sort of beau ideal of the Washington player was because he had a sense of humor. He had That's a true, real, actually. He had a real really wit. True. And I have to say, like, people have been sharing some of his one-liners yeah. uh, in, in the last few days. This one from Ed Luce is just priceless. Uh, Henry Kissinger, and I'm sure this was at his height back in the, the 1970s when he was oddly famous as a man about town. Uh, Using the word dating, height loosely, I yeah, should his, note, but go his, on. His, yeah. dating, his dating life was the subject of gossip columns all over the place. And he's quoted as saying that, uh, well, you know, the war between the sexes can never have a winner. Why is that? Too much fraternizing with the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty darn yeah. good. I was going to say something about his the, him in the 70s and socializing because I was an intern for Time Magazine and what, at that point in Washington. And one of the first things I saw in Washington was Henry Kissinger splayed out on beautiful satin pillows at the Iranian embassy before the Iranian revolution. Um, and there was Paige Lee <laughs> Hufty, who was the debutante of the year in Washington, right in front of him, and Elizabeth Taylor. And he, of course, famously said that in Washington anyway, power is the ultimate yeah. aphrodisiac. And he sure rode that one as far as <laughs> well, you could I, go I, on it. He, he was kind of, and this will surprise people, but for all the things we say, he was self-aware about how much he was hated, honestly. And he knew that. One of the things he liked to do uh, when he sat down at a kind of New York dinner party was he would turn to the person next to him and he would say, uh, you're probably the kind of person who thinks I'm a war criminal. And it was this strangely disarming thing to say uh, because you sort of got it out of the way over the appetizer. Well, but his, you know, it was that combination of the self-deprecating humor and then the massive, enormous ego, which, yeah. again, you know, this is Washington, a town of big egos. And, you know, I should say that a lot of our conversation today, I think, is informed and shaped by all of these wonderful books that have been written about Kissinger. But so here's a story both about, I think, my favorite, the best of the Kissinger books, but it also goes to his ego. And the best of the Kissinger biographies, I think, is Kissinger by Walter Isaacson. And that's what the book is called, is Kissinger. And famously, Isaacson was, I think, one of those journalists who relied upon Kissinger as a source. Uh, But uh, when he wrote the book, Kissinger was mad about it, and he felt that it was too critical of him. And he was asked by somebody, 
about this. He actually did not speak to Walter Isaacson for a number of years as a result of this book. Somebody asked him about the book, and he said, ah, yes, the only thing I like about it is the title. <laughs> God. The title well, is Kissinger. Right. <laughs> and thinking about his legacy, thinking about, you know, he obviously advised all of these presidents, but he also um, blazed a trail in a certain way in Washington by um, starting the ultimate revolving door company here. Mm-hmm. After he left public service, he made a fortune sort of monetizing the access he had to and the information he had about high-level government workings. He was held out by critics as someone who um, was sort of a model of conflicts of interest. He served on public, um, on the president's advisory boards at the same time that he was also being paid by private companies. Um, and so, for instance, he was on the what's called PIFIAB, the um, foreign policy advisory board of the president, mm. um, at the same time that he had IT&T as a client, which had huge numbers of defense contracts for missiles. It's a kind of a synergy, some would say. He's got getting inside information on intelligence, very sensitive matters. And he is he representing the interests of his client when he advises back about what the United States should do on foreign policy and intelligence? And is he giving secrets to his clients and selling them? You know, I mean, he would say, and they did say, absolutely not. There was no conflict of interest, but it's an incredibly cozy, lucrative relationship. And um, his company, Kissinger Associates, which never, has never publicly uh, disclosed its clients. People only know about them because little bits have dribbled out. But that company, in many ways, I think, represents what Donald Trump would call the swamp. Yeah. You know, Jane, you've spent so much time thinking about influence and money in Washington. Is it right to say that in some ways Kissinger was the Thomas Edison of Washington <laughs> high, high money influence? Yeah, I can. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. you know, he was. He invented the entire business model, essentially, of the strategic consultancy. And, uh, you know, this is really where lobbying went in the last few decades. And it was all courtesy of Henry Kissinger. When other former secretaries of state like Madeleine Albright left office, they, they also set up firms in this model. And they wouldn't have done that if Kissinger hadn't shown them the way. He continued to do that, by the way. We, we began this show with China. And in a way, it's sort of full circle to talk about how he was operating for decades with this nexus of business relationships and yet being received as an American statesman when he would go on his trips to Beijing or to Moscow. People don't realize this. Kissinger probably met with Vladimir Putin more than any other American over the course of the last 20 years, consistently always representing back here in Washington uh, the point of view that the U.S. should essentially come to an accommodation, work with these other great powers, not raise concerns over human rights issues or Chechnya or Ukraine in more recent times. And again, what were the business relationships that were the real reason for many of those trips? I I just find it to be a fascinating next act in Kissinger's life and yet so untransparent is not nearly as well documented as his public face. It was very hidden. You're right. They, these are called strategic consultancy firms, which means that they don't qualify as lobbying firms, which means they don't have to disclose almost anything about their business. It's a, it's a, it's a great kind of loophole. I mean, I was struck thinking about Kissinger as 
in since we've also been thinking about about Jimmy Carter recently, such an opposite in terms Total of what what opposites. Washington values. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, in in that he it's Kissinger's point, all about power. Um, and he scoffed at sort of human rights issues. And you've got Carter, who cared a lot about human rights and was looked down on by Washington for not knowing how to sort of being naive and not playing the power game well enough. And then look at the two different trajectories of their lives after they left office. You know, uh, Carter goes off and, and, and builds housing. And what does Kissinger do? He m- makes millions from yeah. his his access. Such a I have to different... say, in some ways, Jane, that actually is really like the the most important frame for this. I, I'm I'm really struck by that point because you know Jimmy Carter and Henry Kissinger represent the two temptations that live in the Washington soul. You know, a lot of people come to Washington because they say, "I want to make the world a better place," and somehow they they go through the machine and they come out at the other end. Uh, whispering in the ear of some despot somewhere. And they wonder to themselves, and we know this because they sometimes say it and write it, how did this happen to me? And we need, frankly, a few more Jimmy Carters, perhaps, uh, and a few less Henry Kissingers. (laughs) Well, it, it says everything about Washington, that it's Kissinger who was the man of the town and uh, Carter who uh, spent his four-year service here and then, you know, got the hell out. I gotta agree. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Jane Mayer, and we had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.